Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. We have embarked upon the study of one of Shakespeare's greatest comedies, Twelfth Night, and we've done so in a timely fashion because as we move along week by week through the text, we will draw closer to the festivity celebrated by its title, Twelfth Night, the Twelfth Day of or Night of Christmas. There's no actual indication in the text that the action of the play takes place on Twelfth Night or in the Christmas season, but you can also say, well, then why did he title it that? He titled it that, at least in part because the theme of the play, or one of the main themes of the play, is festivity itself, or what a general term that literary critics have sometimes adopted for this type of festivity, the theme of carnival. Twelfth Night is one of what the great Shakespearean critic Samuel Barber C.L. Barber, rather, called the festive comedies, and its opposite number, so to speak, is Midsummer Night's Dream at the other end of the year. We have a winter or solstitial comedy, and then a spring-summer comedy at the other end of the year. And, by the way, there is question in that play as to when it's exactly taking place, too. Nevertheless, the symbolic markers are there. This is also one of Shakespeare's Sea and Tempest comedies, marked by the symbolic and literal presence of the sea and a storm which produces a shipwreck which produces our heroine, Viola, who is, as she thinks at least, the sole survivor of a shipwreck. We have met her in Act One, Scene Two of the play, thinking that she is washed up in a land called Illyria, a fictional name suggesting words like illusion and delirium, and is on her own having to survive as a woman alone in a strange land. She will turn out to be slightly mistaken about that, but nevertheless, that's the dilemma that she thinks she has on her hands. Therefore, plucky heroine that she is, one of a line of memorable, energetic, intelligent Shakespearean heroines, one of the greatest of them all, she sets about solving the problem. She disguises herself as a male because you can't be traveling as a woman alone in a strange land. A male, and will call herself Cesario, pretending to be a, she calls herself a eunuch at one point, a singer with a high voice and hopes to get hired at the court of Duke Orsino, whom she has been told about. And sure enough, when we meet Duke Orsino, he's a big music fan. He opens the play listening to music and making a speech about it. And that is the setup. 
Duke Orsino actually opens the play. We looked at Viola jumping ahead by an act, but now we go back to act one, scene one, and the opening speech, which is by Duke Orsino himself, a famous speech. Music is playing in his court, and music is another theme in the play. This is an exceedingly rich text, Twelfth Night, uh, with many thematic strands running contrapuntally in it. And in fact, Orsino's speech touches upon any number of thematic leitmotif words in the play, almost like an overture in a symphony. Music is playing, and Orsino speaks the first words of the play. If music be the food of love, play on. Give me excess of it, that surfeiting the appetite may sicken and so die. That strain again, it had a dying fall. Oh, it came o'er my ear like the sweet sound that breathes upon a bank of violets, stealing and giving odor. Enough, no more. Tis not so sweet now as it was before. Oh, spirit of love, how quick and fresh art thou, that notwithstanding thy capacity receiveth as to see, not enters there of what validity and pitch soe'er, but falls into abatement and low price even in a minute, so full of shapes his fancy that it alone is high fantastical. And we get, within a dozen lines or so, references to love, and Orsino is a great fan of love, we shall say. Romantic love, uh, exceedingly musical, sweet, wonderful love. And we get a reference to the purple flower of violets. There is intricate sound effect punning in the play on names and terms. The heroine's name is Viola. Later, the musical instruments playing will be referred to as viols, spring, string instruments. Here we have violets, the purple flower of death and rebirth that appears in any number of places throughout the Renaissance tradition of poetry. And later we will meet the other main female character, Olivia, whose name is almost an anagram of Viola. The sense of shifting, shifting identities, shifting names is quite deliberate on Shakespeare's part. And of course, the reference to the sea in one of the sea comedies. One of the underlings of the court, in an attempt to figure out some way to amuse this bored aristocrat who's sitting around mooning, who has the leisure and the luck of social class to be sitting around mooning about romantic love. Trying to amuse him, says, will you go hunt, my lord? 
What curio? The heart, H-A-R-T, in other words, the deer. Orsino uses that as a pretext to make a pun, a typical type of courtly love or romantic love pun. The minute I saw Olivia, he says, that instant I was turned into a heart, a deer, and my desires like fell and cruel hounds ere since pursue me. I am pursued as Acteon was in Greek mythology by the, his own hounds because he saw the goddess Diana naked, in other words, uncovered. And Olivia is, as we will see, covered in a way. She has enclosed herself in her home and refuses to come out of it because she is in mourning for seven years because her father and then her brother died. And she is also wearing a veil. So, uh, and one of the members of the court reminds Orsino of this and thereby informs the audience right after this that Orsino is uh, for seven years, like a cloisterous, she will veil, veil it walk. She's like a nun in cloister. And the idea of Acteon died because he saw Diana naked, uncovered. The idea of covering and uncovering of Olivia is also in the play of words. All of this within the first 30 lines of the play. Setting it up. Then, in scene two, as we saw last week, we have Viola, who is thrown up by the sea and enters in disguise into this land where she will find not one but two places dysfunctional and paralyzed. We have just seen Duke Orsino, who is sitting around mooning about romantic love thinking of himself as a hunted victim. And by the way, Orsino's name suggests the word for bear, Ursine. And bear baiting was a pastime in the theater district where the globe was located. So he has a name that suggests a hunted animal as well, even though, as I say, he's really a bored child of privilege. Viola has real problems, but unlike both Orsino and Olivia, she doesn't sit around statically mooning about them. She picks herself up and starts solving the problem. She disguises herself, goes to Orsino's court, and the scene shifts away from both her and Orsino for a while, and we meet, as is Shakespeare's method, in scene three of act one, another set of characters. We have seen how Shakespeare usually does this. He introduces the groups of characters in the play that have a natural association, each of them in a successive scene in order to clue the audience in gradually and not overwhelm them with the total cast of characters all at the same time. So he does it methodically scene by scene. And in scene three, 
we meet the comic subplot. We see already in the first two scenes the romantic main plot beginning to shape up, a love-struck Orsino, Viola, who's going to go to the court and fall in love with him, and Olivia, that he thinks at least that he's in love with elsewhere. That's the main plot. Almost always in a Shakespearean comedy, there is a contrapuntal subplot played for low laughs, usually concerning the lower social class characters who are made fun of. Here, however, very significantly in Twelfth Night, we have a twist. We do get the comic low subplot, but the characters are actually not low. We realize that we have characters named Sir Toby Belch and Sir Andrew Aguecheek. They are members of the aristocracy. We also meet a woman named Maria, but we have to be careful because she is actually also a gentlewoman. She is not a servant, as you might think. These are people who are acting as if they were of a lower social class. They are acting rowdy. They are acting vulgarly, at least by upper-class standards. They're acting out of their social class. And that turning of the class order upside down is part of the theme of the play, as we will see. The overturn of the social class level levels is one of the main themes of Carnival. So we have Sir Toby Belch. And Toby, as his name clearly suggests, is a drinker. The humor running around Sir Toby is that he is constantly, inevitably, always drunk and always misbehaving in a drunken way. We are reminded of Falstaff in the history plays that we just have gotten done discussing in the second tetralogy that Shakespeare had finished not too many years before Twelfth Night. He and Sir Toby Belch, we have the fat jokes that we simply, if we're going to enjoy Falstaff, we can't be politically correct about fat jokes. And if we're going to enjoy Toby Belch, we can't have the enlightened attitude that you shouldn't make fun of alcoholics because they are tragic victims of an illness. You just have to laugh at the drunk. He is dragging along with him, so to speak, the character Sir An Andrew Egucheek. And the reason that Sir Andrew is here is that Sir Andrew desires to woo Olivia. And Olivia wants nothing to do with him, but nevertheless, he's been set on to this by Sir Toby Belch, who keeps convincing him, oh, you've, you really do have a chance. You really do have a chance. She won't go for Orsino no matter what, because he's beyond her social station. More social class theme chiming in there. 
Really, that's not true, but Sir Andrew is not the brightest bulb that we will meet. And he is easily duped into this. And why is Sir Toby Belch encouraging him? Because Sir Andrew is rich and Sir Toby is sponging off of him. And these are the low humor characters. And when we meet them, they are acting up. Their favorite pastime is to be rowdy in the middle of the night, drunkenly singing, and in Sir Andrew's case, capering. He ends this scene doing capers. In other words, he does backflips and stands on his hands. Great thing for somebody named Sir Andrew to be doing, but again, acting out of their social class. The turning upside down of the social order and this is set up against the cause of order in Olivia's household, whom we haven't met yet, but the antagonist of the entire crew will be another character, Malvolio. However, before we get there, we have all sorts of punning and chatter, including puns on wet and dry, because we have a sea comedy here, but we have dry in a multiple sense of fertile or not fertile, and of course there's a sexual double entendre meaning to it as well, a dry gesture, etc., etc. By the time we get to scene four, some time has clearly passed, and we have not been shown it, but the character named appropriately, Valentine, says to Viola, well, if the Duke continue these favors towards you, Cesario, you are like to be much advanced. He hath known you but three days, and already you are no stranger. Well, we have passed over that uh, in the interim while we were looking at other characters. However, Viola's life suddenly gets complicated because in this scene, Orsino likes Cesario so much and trusts him so much that he gives Cesario a task to perform. I need you to go over to visit Olivia and deliver her a message of my undying love for her. I want you to woo. She won't have anything to do with me, but I want you to go and be an intermediary and woo her. And I will give you something, a speech, that you can recite to her. And you can be the go-between between the two of us. Viola ends the scene with an aside, yet a barful strife. Whoe'er I woo, myself would be his wife. So time has indeed passed, and it doesn't take long for these characters. They're already in love. Viola is in love with the Duke, and the Duke is fond of Cesario, as he thinks, and we will see what fond means, something very complex as the play goes on. Finally, in Act One, Scene Five, which is the final scene of the first act, we meet 
the last two of the main characters in the play, and we meet them together. We meet Malvolio, the steward in Olivia's house. That is, he is the character who has the authority and the task of running the household and therefore keeping order in the household. No mean feat, given the out-of-control characters hanging around Sir Toby. And we also meet the clowner jester, Fest, a major character in this play, who is the embodiment, you might say, of the spirit of the play, of the festive comedy, of festivity itself, as his name discloses. And he is bantering with Maria back and forth, and Olivia comes in, and Fest launches into a series of jokes and banter with Olivia, one of the things that jesters could do to make fun of the very people that they are serving, but do it with such humor that the people actually enjoy it. And Olivia banters back and forth, playing on words, including the word dry. You are a dry fool. I'll have no more of you. Well, if I'm a dry fool, then give me drink, he says. And goes on to say, ah, good Madonna, give me leave to prove you a fool. You are the fool. And what Fest does from that point is to go through a series of plays upon words and puns in the tradition of one of the great works of the Renaissance by one of the great figures of the Renaissance, and that is Erasmus, in praise of folly, which is a wonderful prose piece that argues in paradoxes that wisdom is folly and folly is wisdom. In other words, most of what the world accepts as wisdom is really foolishness, is really folly. And to the world, real wisdom looks like foolishness, like folly. And the sane, a sane person in a mad world is condemned as if he were mad, all of which is going to come back to haunt the characters in the play and especially Malvolio in scenes to come. The theme of madness and sanity in this play about overturn and chaos is prominent and interwound. And this is one of the things that relates it to the tragedy that is next door to it in date, and that is Hamlet. Hamlet says to Olivia, let me prove you a fool. Well, you're mourning your brother's death, right? Fest says, I think his soul is in hell, Madonna. Olivia promptly replies, I know his soul is in heaven, fool. The more fool, Madonna, to mourn for your brother's soul being in heaven. Take away the fool, gentlemen. You're, if you're sure he's in heaven, then you're a fool to be mourning him. And yes, it's 
a way of amusing the aristocracy who have a lot of time on their hands, especially if you're shutting yourself up for seven years. But of course, there are deeper meanings to it than all that, and these things will come home. In comes Malvolio, and it's no accident that Shakespeare has introduced these two characters, Fest and Malvolio, within the same scene, because they are thematically linked. They will in fact be linked through the plot later on in the play, but they are linked thematically. They are both symbolic characters. They both stand for something. They are types. The fool clown is a type who embodies the very spirit of comedy, the spirit of festivity of carnival. Malvolio is also a type, though. We would call him the type of the party poop. Northrop Frye, in his work on Shakespearean comedy, refers to this type as the refuser of festivities, the holdout. Jaques in As You Like It is another figure of somewhat the same type. And these two are therefore polar opposites, the spirit of festivity and the refuser of festivities. And therefore, it will not surprise us that their relationship quickly turns out to be one of mutual antagonism. Malvolio is in charge of order in this household, and I suppose we have to grant that that is no easy task, given the out-of-control characters in this household. And his task is made all the more difficult to grant him his due in the fact that he's been put in an awkward social class position. He is required to try to discipline and control aristocratic characters, Sir Toby, Sir Andrew, but he himself is middle class. And therefore, his attempt to control them is, of course, going to be resisted and resented, and it is, and they will take their revenge on him, and that is how the plot is going to shape up. And it does not help that Malvolio has, shall we say, an attitude. The attitude is lodged in his name. Many of the names, if not most of them in this play, have symbolic overtones. Malvolio literally means ill will, comparable to Benvolio, goodwill, in Romeo and Juliet. But Malvolio, he is the not just serious and sober character in all senses. He is sober in the sense of solemn. He is so sober in the sense that he's the only one sober while the rest of the crowd is drunk and the mutual antagonism. So he has a difficult job, but it's not made any easier by his attitude. And Olivia, although she has put him in this position, and why has she done so? It's exactly he's been hired, so to speak, because of his sobriety. Nonetheless, she is with it enough to size him 
Uh, he protests that this is a moral stance on his part. I cannot stand these people that are running rampant and doing all sorts of basically immoral things in this household. Olivia rather shrewdly says to him, oh, you are sick of self-love, Malvolio, and taste with a distempered appetite. Right on target. He poses as moral, but really, as we will see, he gets unmasked as a kind of hidden narcissist with a power drive. Malvolio does have an itch for control, but it's not a moral itch. It's a will to power and control, and it's also a social climbing fantasy that is involved with it. And, of course, this is the polar opposite to Fest himself. This is the cast of characters by the end of Act One, but this long scene does not end before somebody's at the door. And who is it? Somebody comes bursting in. It is Cesario. In other words, it is Viola, who bursts in, does not take no for an answer, and manages to push herself in front of Olivia and begins to launch into the speech that she has memorized that Orsino has penned for her. I would be loath to cast away my speech, for besides it is excellently well penned, I have taken great pains to con it, to memorize it. So let me say my piece here. And yet the minute that he or she starts to do it, realizes this speech is basically romantic baloney, and throws it away and launches extempore in her own right and makes quite the impression on Olivia. After all, Olivia lives in a land and a household where nobody has this type of energy, nobody has this type of vitality, and she is clearly fascinated by the uh, whole manner of Olivia. So much so that, as she says, we will draw the curtain and show you the picture, and she unveils herself. She has been wearing a veil. This is a woman who plans to be in mourning for seven years and has already completed the first year, apparently, and unveils herself, saying, we will show you the picture. Often in the Renaissance, paintings, pictures, had curtains that covered them over. The most famous instance of this outside of Shakespeare here is Browning, My Last Duchess, where the speaker in that dramatic monologue draws aside the curtains and shows the portrait of his last duchess in all the deadly senses of the term. Here, Olivia thinks of herself or speaks of herself 
as if she were a painting, draws the curtain. Here I am, look you, sir, such a one as I, wa I was this present. Is it not well done? Good job of painting. Still with the painting metaphor, excellently done, if God did all, if it's not faked. And Olivia says, I am giving you a resounding no answer to take back to Duke Orsino. I cannot love him, send him no more, unless perchance you come to me again to tell me how he takes it. Say, send no more, Orsino, but you can come back. Uh, you can come back, Cesario, and tell me how he takes it. Viola starts to leave and is suddenly intercepted by Malvolio, who says, here, you left this ring behind. Stop trying to flatter my lady and take it back with you. And Olivia is stopped dead in her tracks in the last lines of the first act because she had not left a ring. And she knows what to make of this. She knows this means that Olivia is giving the token for her, in other words, for him, gave the ring to Cesario, indicating romantic interest. So at the end of act one, we have a woman disguised as a man who goes to the court of a man Orsino, who becomes quite fond of her, thinking that she is a young man, goes over to Olivia, who becomes attracted to her as a man, even though it's really another woman, and is going to go back to Orsino and find the plot thickening because Orsino, despite still thinking of Cesario as a male, just keeps finding himself drawn to him. What a mess by the end of Act One. And of all people, it is Olivia who speaks the final words of Act One, which are going to be thematically crucial to the play. She says, ourselves we do not owe, meaning we do not own. We don't own ourselves. We have to give ourselves away. That's what love is, to shut yourself in and refuse to love, is a kind of selfishness. We don't own ourselves, we have to give. It's a kind of miserliness to refuse to love. Mind you, this is a woman who is refusing to love, but on the other hand, she's about to change that in a mistaken but very real way. But giving, shutting up is not acceptable and closing yourself away from love, not loving, is not acceptable in a Shakespearean comedy. In Measure for Measure, 
the greatest of the problem comedies. We have another character, Isabella, who is actually all but a nun. She is already in a convent. She has not yet taken the final vows, but she is on her way there. And she too is refusing. She's in the convent, though she is unconscious of it. She thinks she's there for spiritual reasons. She's really running away. It's not Shakespeare's comment on a religious vocation necessarily. It's a comment on the structure of comedy where people have to come out of themselves and give themselves away. And to do that may involve losing your identity, which is, of course, if there is an overriding theme in Twelfth Night, it is the metamorphic character of identity. There's lots more to go in this plot. Very little action in Twelfth Night, and yet a lot goes on, and we will continue to follow it next time. <laughs>